0: Toto Wolf, he described last weekend at Interlagos as horrible.
1: Yes, it was truly horrible. Just how horrible? Well, on a scale of USF 1 to 40 course, I would say we were Andrea Moda. Oh, that is bad. Yes, that's bloody bad.
0: And as Lewis said, as soon as we can get rid of this goddamn W14, the better. It is bleeding terrible. But you know what they say, Toto, if it
1: bleeds, you can kill it. I'll do the Schwarzenegger jokes if you don't mind.
0: Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, he's Zong. Hello. And she's Sarah. Hello. Now, I'm going to start off with a trick question. Did any of us three watch the
2: Brazilian Grand Prix this weekend? No, I watched another Grand Prix. It
3: was the Sao Paulo. Yes,
2: yes, quite right.
3: Yeah, nobody watched
0: the Brazilian Grand Prix. I think for the second time in two years, it was branded the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. And as the only race in Brazil, that strikes me as being a bit
2: odd. I don't know any guesses, either of you, why that might be. Uh, No, I was hoping you were going to tell me, actually, because like you, I was wondering why are they being so insistent that this is the Sao Paulo and not the Brazilian Grand Prix? Usually when you have the situation of a race in a particular country being named after the region that it's in or the city that it's in, it's because, yeah, as you were hinting at, there's more than one race that year in that country. Yeah. So one of them is the German Grand Prix and the other is the European Grand Prix. Or uh, yep. mm. and We've had this in Germany, in the UK, in other countries. But there's only one race in Brazil this year, so what's going on? I would guess it's something to do with a local government or regional government kind of initiative branding, yeah. maybe, that, you know, they're keen to push Sao Paulo as a tourist destination or just you know boost the region generally, and if you've got a Sao Paulo Grand Prix, that's going to help to do the trick.
3: That would be my instinct. That would be my answer too. I think Zog. <laughs> I think yeah. it's just branding. Yeah. I mean, if they don't say the Melbourne Grand Prix, yeah. they say the Australian Grand Prix. But then they have Azerbaijan and Bahrain. It's just yeah. I'd say it would be branding because each Formula One, they all have their own. I guess marketing the team, the actual Grand Prix itself, have their in-house team that you know helps
2: promoters that's what
0: i was going to say yeah of course yeah yeah i reckon you're both right my guess is that the national government of brazil because pretty much every race in the calendar except i think britain and maybe one or two others has some kind of funding that comes from national government but i reckon the reason why it's not the brazilian grand prix is that the brazilian national government haven't put money in but zog like you said the regional government of Sao Paulo, the city and the region have invested money in it and therefore they want their return. I oh, going to call it the Sao Paulo Grand Prix and Curiously, there was someone, mm. a pal of Tyco's here when we were watching the race on Sunday. And they said, where are they? Where is the race? I said, oh, it's in Sao Paulo. And they said, oh, one of the most dangerous places in the world. So yeah, maybe Sao Paulo. i trying to say, no, it's not a violent, dangerous place at all. We have Formula One here. It's upmarket. It's perfectly safe. Mm. Maybe that was it. Who knows? Who knows? But once again, we had another sprint weekend the final sprint weekend of the grand prix season which if you add up all the sprint races and the was it 24 formula 1 races that's 30 races to watch this year which is pretty much double what it used to be i don't know 15 or even 20 years ago and i know i say this every time on the program i really struggle to find time To watch the sprint and the Grand Prix over the weekend. You know, if practice is on, I can have that on in the background and I'm working on my computer. If something intriguing happens, I can pause for a minute. But a race requires your full attention. So I have to make the choice do I stop working and watch the sprint, or do I continue working? something has to give and this is me one of us a hardcore f1 fan
2: saying oh i've got time to watch all the races yeah but i would argue that the sprint race is about the right length that you can you know if you get your timing right you know you can have your lunch during the sprint race for example you know yeah there are ways to work it into your day if you're a little bit creative
0: i can't even remember what happened in the sprint now i take a guess Verstappen won. He usually wins, doesn't he, in everything?
2: He did. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: Maybe it's a function of getting older or just too much Formula One. I can't keep both in my head. I can only remember the Grand Prix result. And it was a good Grand Prix.
3: Well, yes, it was. I think it was one of the best all year, they're saying. I mean, there wasn't a lot of action in the middle of the race, but towards the end and the beginning there was, we had Charles Leclerc from Ferrari. He didn't even start the race, unfortunately, because he crashed out in the formation lap. So that was very sad. I was very sorry for Charles Leclerc. So that was a bit of action. And then we had... A bit of action, the a takeoff. it was the Haas car, I think, that went flying.
0: Yeah, it was Magnuson, wasn't it, who yeah. squoze Hulk and Albom. I mean, Magnuson's a bit of an elbows-out driver, isn't he? And you've got to be careful, really, and he wasn't, and they all paid the price.
2: Magnuson's all elbows sometimes, it seems. <laughs> that would be a little bit unfair. I mean, you know, he was also rather unlucky there, I think. But yeah, that was a messy incident.
3: I think what they are applauding most of all from the race or the take home is that Fernando Alonso really is possibly one of the greatest drivers in history, given how he was able to manage his car and save on you know energy and his tyres to be able to surpass or challenge Perez and win that third place. And they went back and forth a few times and then he nipped him in the bud at the very end. Yeah. And I think he really did commit to that, Alonso. After the race, he spoke about his energy saving and his tyre strategy. And he said there was a crucial moment in the beginning of the race where he was able to overtake Hamilton. And if he didn't do that, then he wouldn't have had success towards the end of the race. So... I thought that was good. So I suppose the highlight for me would be Alonso's performance, yes.
2: Me too. It was something special, yeah. I'm a huge fan of Alonso 2.0, you know, the new model Alonso. And this weekend really was spectacular, you know, to have the oldest driver in the field having such a good scrap with Perez and then making it to third place in the podium. Yeah, I just love the Alonso we've got at the moment. Definitely driver of the day. Although there were also some other great performances in there that are easy to overlook. Sonoda finishing 7th I think and ahead of Ricardo. You know, you know, whether Ricardo is going to put in the performances that will secure him a better drive next year is, you know, one of the talking points at the moment. And there's kind of this implication that we really expect him to be better than Sonoda, to out-qualify and out-race Sonoda, but you know, Sonoda's risen to the challenge this weekend and Ricardo was unlucky at the start. His rear wing was hit by a flying tyre from that incident. He had to pit and by the time he come back out and he'd lost out because of the red flag, he was a lap down along with Piastri. Now, his scrap with Piastri during the race, for me, was another highlight. There was some great racing there. It's a shame they were so far down. But at the same time that Ricardo was having all this drama... Sonoda is a couple of places ahead of him, free of trouble and getting points for the team. So credit to both of the Alpha Tauri drivers this weekend. Also, one of my star performances of the race was the tyre that came off that accident. Because did you notice the way that it bounced? You know, after it had caused all the chaos by bouncing across the track and hitting a couple of cars and then rolling on. The way that it was bounced bouncing away from the track because the tyre had come off and been damaged and it wasn't completely round it was an eccentric shape it wasn't bouncing evenly and it was kind of skipping and dancing in really a rather beautiful way and uh, that, honestly i i thought that that was one of my moments of the race I thought it was a really beautiful odd little moment seeing this tyre with a rather light-hearted sort of nonchalant air skipping away from all the trouble it had caused you know
0: (laughs) well mad props as the young people used to say to danny rick for doing his level best to try and predict where that eccentric tire was going to land you saw him weighing it up from his point of view the onboards and then just jinking slightly left but it still got him it just clipped his rear wing and i was describing to someone here how light Formula 1 tyres are I remember going to McLaren's headquarters in Woking 25 years ago I think it was now um, being told oh look there's a couple of Formula 1 wheels and tyres pick them up Gareth and I took hold of each and was able to pick them up above my head both of them mm, wow. but almost no weight whatsoever So for an object that light to have that much energy in it to be able to destroy a rear wing, it was all about the speed at which it was travelling. Its velocity gave it its ability to smash Danny Rick's rear wing. And uh, scary stuff, you know, they work hard, don't they, to keep wheels attached to cars with tethers. But if the tyre breaks away from the wheel not much you can do about that. I'm wondering if f one might look into that in future as a potential danger spot.
2: You might be right there. Maybe the rims, the design of the rims could maybe be a little bit better in terms of retaining the tyres in incidents like that. Because we've had tyres come off while wheels were still fixed before. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll look at it. Just how dangerous it is, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure they'll look at it.
0: I want to bounce back. Talking of tyres, I want to bounce I see back. What you did there, very good. <laughs> it was a complete accident until I said it, I really. To Alonso. I'm no great Alonso fan, although I admire him as a driver. And I don't think my admiration for him as a driver has ever been higher than the way that he took on Perez in those last few laps. Like you said, Sarah, he'd managed his tyres and his energy level brilliantly. But his car positioning, his desire not to give up that place under any circumstances whatsoever and to cross the line 53 one-thousandths of a second ahead of Perez. Perez... Almost got him. If that start-finish line had been, I don't know, a metre or two metres a bit further up the track, Perez would have won it. But Alonso just got it. Oh, yeah, so close. If that was for the win, that would have been the closest win in Formula 1 history. I remember a race in IndyCar when it was called Champ Car, I think, in Portland, Oregon, where Mark Blundell won the race by... I don't know if it was 53,000 or 23,000. It was about as close as that. One of the most spectacular endings to any race, and given mm. that it is a given that Max is going to win every race, we have to take our joy from the second and third and fourth and fifth place finishes. That's where the close racing is, and it is close. It shows you because Mercedes. You know they make the slightest error on setup or i don't know engine cooling or whatever it is that gave them performance issues this week, and bang, you're way down the field. the field is so close at the moment unless you're in a red bull, and I think we ought to be grateful for that it's It's great entertainment,
2: isn't it?
3: Yes, it is it is
2: yes. yeah, yeah, and I quite agree at the same time that it is very predictable what's going to happen with the sappen, Red Bull. And their pattern of winning races all the time. Yeah, we've got to find our excitement a little bit further back. But yeah, the, the, but there has been you know, real competition, really good racing behind that almost dead cert first place. You know, we've had McLaren, Mercedes, Ferrari, Aston Martin, all being up there racing for best of the rest. Really, but that race for best of the rest has been good this year. It's a shame that they weren't all closer to Red Bull.
3: Yeah,
0: that's a shame.
2: I think we can actually thank the
0: sprint for the closer racing in the Grand Prix because the way that the tyre allocation works over the weekend teams have to decide which tyres to allocate for which race. Now there is a greater percentage points haul availability if you save your tires for the race but if you think you might be in with a chance of scoring points in the sprint you might want to use all your sticky tires there and i think that is one of the functions of the sprint that it has given us closer racing but i know that the jury is out especially amongst the teams not just the punters but the teams as well regarding the sprint weekend and how it plays out over the weekend now this last weekend, we had free practice on Friday, followed by sprint shootout and the sprint... Re- now, hang on. Did we?
3: You usually have the qualifying... They changed the qualifying for the main race on Sunday to Friday on the sprint weekends. So on a Friday, you'll have the practice and then the, yeah, the- actual qualifying for Sunday. And then on the Saturday, there will be the sprint qualifying and the sprint race. Yep. And then on the Sunday... They have the actual Grand Prix. Now, the sprint race, I think you said earlier, Gareth, it's really hard to watch it all on the weekend if you're a you know, sit-at-home viewer on the other side of the world. And I think I said it last time, it really is for the benefit of the people coming in through the gates. Yep. So they get more for their you know, weekend sitting in the grandstand than just qualifying in the race. They'll have like, yeah, a whole, I guess, smorgasbord of you know, what they can absorb or Formula One over the weekend. On site.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's great if you're there. I'm just checking. I made some notes. We had Grand Prix qualifying on Friday after free practice mm. with the sprint shootout and the sprint on Saturday and then the race Sunday. But as they say in business going forward, there is some discussion that the schedule in future will be the sprint shootout on Fridays. The sprint... And qualifying for the Grand Prix on Saturday and then the Grand Prix on Sunday. Now, that makes a little bit more sense for me because I think you shouldn't have Grand Prix qualifying before you've had sprint qualifying. It's that that creates the confusion in my head. You've got to yeah, deal with one thing, then move on to the next thing. Maybe that's just my logical brain. That's how I see it.
2: I think I can multitask just enough to cope with qualifying for a race on Sunday with both qualifying and the actual event for the sprint in between. Yeah, the tinkering to change those two qualifying sessions over, I don't think I care. And I don't think I have any idea really how that will feel. I think my view of the sprint weekends generally is that I wouldn't want that every weekend. It's just too much. Yep. Like you say, Gareth, it's just, you know, you know, it's just too much. But I do want it a few weekends in the you know, It's good to have these Grand Prix weekends when you think, oh, OK, no, this is good. I've got a bit more action on Saturday, some more meaningful action on Saturday that I can tune into. And as far as the proposed changes go, yeah, let's just see. I'll just see how that plays out next year. I don't think I'll feel very different to it to how I feel about this year's format. I think it'll feel very similar, to be honest.
3: In terms of next year and the cars uh, that you were talking about earlier, I know f- I have read quotes from Lewis Hamilton that he's looking forward to seeing the end of the car for this year, Yeah, and that might hopefully improve Mercedes's goals or their achievements next year, so maybe we'll see a little bit more parity with Red Bull next year as well between those top teams. Take Red Bull off the top, but... Very hard to do at the moment.
2: Maybe, Sarah, let's hope you're right. But the gap between Red Bull and the other teams, you know, it's still kind of ominous. And the other teams, they've got a lot of catching up to do. And I don't think Red Bull have been working on this year's car for a while. You know, whatever they've been doing, all those clever aerodynamicists and engineers in the back room, you know, they've been working on next year's car not working on this year's car, which a lot of the other teams will still have been doing further into this season. So fingers crossed that the gap's going to come down. But I'd be surprised if Red Bull don't start next year very strongly.
0: What's that you say? A team of people working on a car? You mean it's not all the work of Adrian Newey, who just imagines the car in a 30-second moment of clarity.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, maybe there's a Newey-led hive mind of some kind. I'm sure Newey is key, is obviously, you know, absolutely central to the process there, but he's not designing everything. It takes a village to make an F1 car, a very advanced village. I like what you said a moment ago, a hive mind.
0: Does this mean that the design department is, in fact, the Borg of formula one and that adrian newey is the borg queen just that sort of embodiment of (laughs) spirit Um, but similar things going on at mercedes there have been some personnel changes they lost or rather mike elliott decided to walk not from the mercedes formula one team But from Formula One, he says, no, it's been too much of a toll over the number of years and it's getting a bit unpleasant and it's hard work. So he's walking. They had done a job swap earlier on where James Allison had come back in the role that Mike Elliott had been doing before. And James Allison's track record historically is very, very good. But as we've just discussed, it's not down to one person, is it? It's all down to the hive mind. Just... Bouncing back again, like that continually bouncing rubber wheel. I want to go back to poor old Charles Leclerc. Why am I so unlucky? Why am I so unlucky? Mate, you're not unlucky. You grew up in Monaco. You're probably a multimillionaire. You drive a Ferrari. You're largely quicker than your teammate. Your teammate's a lovely guy. You're not unlucky. But you are a DNS and you don't hear that very often. DNS did not start. And it made me think we have DNS did not start. We have DNF did not finish. I think we ought to introduce a couple of other terms as well, like DDVW. Any guesses what that might stand for? No idea.
2: DDVW. DDVW. Didn't distinguish. No, I don't. You're more or less there, actually. Uh, Didn't do very well.
0: DDVW. I think they ought to put that alongside Logan Sargent at most races, but not his race this weekend. Yes, he was flattered by a whole bunch of cars not actually finishing the race, but fair play to little old Logan. He had a decent race. Where did he finish in the end, Sarah? Was it 12th or something like that?
3: He finished 11th ahead of Hulk.
1: Ah! Uh, Hulk
0: almost had a great weekend, but not quite. But I'm relieved for poor Logan Sargent. I feel for him. He needs our love. I don't dislike Logan Sargent. Oh, but, oh my gosh, I was thrilled when Lance Stroll stopped running in third. (laughs) I thought, oh no, please don't let Lance Stroll finish on the podium. I'd hate that. Why do I dislike Lance Stroll so much?
2: Why? That is very unfair. He's, yeah, no, I think that's rather mean. Yeah, Stroll is inconsistent. You know, he, he's certainly not the best driver out there. but um, He's consistently grumpy. He's been very grumpy recently. He looks like he's been having an awful time recently. Yeah. He was happy this weekend and starting third for the sprint race, wasn't he? He had a much better weekend than a lot of race weekends have been for him recently. He finished a couple of places behind Alonso and, you know, finishing within a couple of places of your super strong ex-champion teammate is a good result. So, no, no, no. Well done, Lance Stroll. We hope it makes you a bit less grumpy for the rest of the year.
0: Let's see if the next Grand Prix will cheer him up. I know how you feel about the next Grand Prix, Zonga, but we're off to Las Las Vegas, not Mm, Los, Las Vegas, in a couple of weeks' time. Sarah, have you seen the layout of the circuit? Have you heard about the plans for the Las Vegas race
3: I haven't unfortunately do you know what they are well the
0: circuit doesn't look that well suited to overtaking and racing it's certainly going to be a spectacle as they are racing down the strip then it's a bunch of right angled corners here and there so I don't know if it's going to be a great race Grand Prix but i 'm reckoning that there will be a lot of wall incidents, a lot of barriers, a lot of smash and crash there'll be lots of yellow flags which will bunch the cars up and hopefully give us a close ending and hopefully a chance for Alonso to shine again. So you are probably the most psyched of all of us for this Grand Prix,
2: yeah, I think Formula One and Las Vegas is going to be a great combination. Not, as you say, because it's going to be the best circuit for racing, but for the spectacle, for the occasion. I can't wait to see how that plays out. Racing down the Strip is going to be something else. It's going to be a fantastic-looking race and a hell of an occasion.
0: One downside, though... The race begins at 6 a.m. here in the UK. But at least your dad will be able to watch it, Sarah. It'll be 6 p.m. in Australia or 5 p.m., won't it?
3: Yes, exactly. So I'm sure they get a huge following or viewing from Australia. But I think they do anyway. Formula One's quite big in Australia now. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like
0: you say, with two drivers on the grid... And another one standing by, you mentioned the other week, but I didn't let you complete the thought, unfortunately. You were talking about Mick son. Is it Jack? James, what's his name? Jack Doohan. Uh, Jack, yeah. Uh, Jack Doohan. Jack He who's a lovely lad, and be great to see him in F1. But for now, that's it for the F1 chat. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank
3: you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And speak to you soon.
3: Okay, bye.
2: And
1: as Westminster falls silent, King Charles III makes his maiden speech to Parliament. My ministers will introduce new legal frameworks to support the safe commercial development of emerging industries such as self-driving vehicles. Comprehensive legislation will be drawn up for autonomous vehicles in order to prevent the UK falling behind other nations. Yes, probably places like, I don't know, Burkina Faso or Tuvalu. And if I may deviate slightly from protocol to comment, I must say that this is likely to be an absolute shitshow of a process. Now, if I'm done here, I'm off. I'm um, jumping to one of my Aston Martins, and if you don't mind, I'll drive the bloody rascal myself. Autonomous oh, driving nonsense. Bloody hell. What are chauffeurs for? Gareth speed!
0: Just as this year's Brazilian Grand Prix wasn't the Brazilian Grand Prix, it was the Sao Paulo Grand Prix, this year's tokyo motor show wasn't the tokyo motor show it's now called the japan mobility show so that's interesting it shows you how things are evolving in personal mobility that we're moving away from entirely car ownership but we're moving towards you know other forms of electric transport bikes scooters hailing a ride all that but the thing about the um I was going to say Tokyo show, the Japan mobility show this year, was that it offered up some classic Japanese areas of excellence that are back. I'm talking specifically about three cars. We'll start with perhaps the least interesting of the three, and it's still an interesting car, and that is the new
2: Honda Prelude. It's a handsome beast, isn't it, Zogger? Yeah, it really is. It's a real look very, very sleek, lovely eyes. It's a good, sporty coupe. The old Prelude, it was a pretty handsome looking car, I always thought. Yeah. But not an award winner. It has lovely clean lines, and I like the little spoil of the wing on the back. That's sort a of nice thin element at the very back. Very nice, understated. That is a nice touch. Yeah. 2026, is it that it's expected to arrive? I believe so. And it's a hybrid. It's not a pure
0: electric. It's not an internal combustion engine car. It's a hybrid. Now, Honda have got previous with hybrids. They've had the Insight and have had hybrid energy recovery on a couple of their cars, two or three of their cars. Over the years, and I'm pleased that they're thinking about sports cars, the joy of driving. And it says something about Honda that they think it's worth pursuing a small coupe that people will buy it. I'm wondering if they're thinking more about the American market than. The Japanese market, because I'm guessing that the Prelude, it'll be the Acura Prelude, I would imagine, in America. Uh, yeah,
2: probably. Yeah, yeah. And it's gorgeous. Yeah, it is. You know, not much more to say about it other than that. I think it might be using a version of the hybrid powertrain from the CRV. I think probably might be just worth mentioning that. Yeah, you talk about the motivation for producing a new prelude, what market are they targeting, what do they have in mind here. I wonder whether an element of this, and this would apply to some extent both the other vehicles we're going to talk about I think, I wonder if there's an element of wanting to make the most they can out of the heritage that they have, a heritage of well-known and well-loved vehicles and a desire to build on that at a time when, in the sector of new vehicles, largely electric vehicles, Chinese manufacturers are increasingly defying the expectations that, oh, they're going to be a bit cheap and rubbish and we don't have to worry about them. You know, they are making very, very good, very attractive vehicles. And it's tough competition. And drawing on a reserve that you have of well-loved names that you can develop on a new platform in a new vehicle is maybe a good strategy Mm, i think you've nailed it zog i was about to say something
0: similar the the thing about the japanese car industry in the last few years is that it's been slightly overlooked exactly as you said all the new exciting evs sorry not all many of the new exciting evs are chinese if not korean and these are the people that the Japanese motor industry has to compete with. And identifying a brand that is well-loved, like the Prelude, will help them. You know, it's that trade-off. Do I go for a new, exciting brand like, uh, I don't know, Quavlage? You know, <laughs> There always seem to be new brands being made up every week. Or do I go for something, a Honda or a Prelude? Do I know what I'm going to get for that? You know, they're relying on their existence as a brand rather than being a disruptive startup. Which brings me to the second of the three cars I want to talk about here. And that is arguably one of the most boring cars in the world that is no longer boring. And that is the 2024 model Toyota Prius. This is the fifth generation of the car. They call it the XW60, I believe. And... I can't believe I'm actually saying this. It's beautiful. Not just a handsome car. It's beautiful,
2: isn't it? It really is. Yeah. yeah it really is. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> yeah. It's really surprisingly, shockingly beautiful. Yeah. Shockingly, it's elegant. It's teardrop.
0: It's aerodynamic. It's live. It looks like it's going to slice through something. And it's a Prius. I want. And I wonder if this is a fight back because the poor old Prius is so efficient, it's so useful for driving in cities where you can't drive pure internal combustion engine cars. It's become the de facto taxicab, the Uber, for absolutely everywhere in the world at the moment. And that is sort of Killed it as a brand, it's made it seem really uncool. So, I'm really pleased that this new car is taking the Prius somewhere quite different. And I was reading something the other week, forgive me if I remember this wrong, but I think I read it on Car Magazine that Toyota only sold something like 6,000 Priuses, Prii, in the UK last year that sounds like a shockingly small number and i don't quite understand why maybe it's just increased competition now from the huge number of evs and other hybrids that are available the prius when it was at its zenith perhaps in 2012 2016 was probably outselling everything you got some information for me zog
2: well how many did you say you think they sold in the uk I think
0: 6000.
2: Check that figure again. Okay. Cuz I think it's a lot lower than that. Wow, really? Was it 600? I think it's a factor of 10 lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think <gasps> Wow! That's astonishing. When I was doing a quick Prius facts check before we did this. I've got 563 in 2021. Wow! That's amazing and disappointing. That compares with a little under 18,000 Toyota C-HRs in the same period. Ah, uh, which is essentially the same car. So that reflects Prius figures rather than Toyota sales figures and I guess how old the Prius was looking maybe but the new model is much much sharper looking it's very much the you know, the same format it's recognisably to be the same kind of aerodynamic boxy shape I guess you would call yep. it generically but the details are very good it has an elegance that the previous generation did not have it just looks classier more desirable proposition to me the back is more sorted in particular, I think.
0: You're right, Zog. The previous generation, the current one, the XW50, I've never liked as a car. I think it's over fussy. I think it looks weird. But I think there are two main reasons why the new Prius looks so much better than the previous one. First of all, that lovely teardrop quality that it has. But second of all, it's got, I think, 19-inch wheels, which makes the whole car look a lot more purposeful, less Overbodied.
2: Yes, yeah, it does. No, yeah, it's got a bit more get up and go look, even when it's standing still. They're also pretty good looking wheels, they've had on a lot of the press shots, certainly. Yeah. But there seems to be a question about whether that car is coming to the UK. Yeah, we have a new generation Prius, but when Toyota announced that it was coming to Europe, they also said that it would not be available in the UK. So what's the story there? And Is that still the case? Well, it wasn't until just a few days ago then they finally said, oh no,
0: it is going to come to the UK. And I'm not surprised because we're a right-hand drive market. If they're building the Prius in Japan, it's a right-hand drive car. It'll be easy to version it for the UK regulations. But how many people are going to buy it? If only 600 people bought it the previous year, who's going to buy this Prius? It doesn't look like a... Taxi driver's car. Oh, and it's only available as a plug in hybrid, which I'm not sure is quite as useful to most taxi drivers as a regular non plug in hybrid. Maybe they're pushing the Prius up market. Maybe it's becoming more of an aspirational car. That would be an extraordinary achievement if they are.
2: It would. And uh, is that the Best Toyota to try and do that with? Mm. Is that a good way to try and develop the Prius at this point in its model life? I don't know. I would have. Mm, um, Good question. I wouldn't have thought so.
0: Well, I'm wondering if it's because it's a saloon rather than an SUV. Are we going to see saloons become a bit more desirable? SUVs are seen as like hatchbacks now, the default version, but you go for a saloon, you're choosing style over functionality. Maybe that's what they're doing.
2: Who knows? Yeah, I'm 100% in favour of pushing back against SUVs and in favour of saloons and you know, smaller cars rather than SUVs for urban driving. I understand the economic motivation for manufacturers preferring to build and sell SUVs. They make more money out of them you know, on a vehicle-by-vehicle vehicle basis. But they're awful, terrible things that have no place in cities, broadly speaking. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They don't belong in cities. Get rid of them. Let's talk about something,
0: a car, again, from Japan. Again, a coupe. I don't think the Prius is a coupe, but it's got coupe qualities to it. But this thing is absolutely jaw-droppingly gorgeous. And I would love to see this in the city, on the open road, on a motorway, anywhere. And that is the Mazda iconic SP. Now, this was a concept car shown at the Japan Mobility Show, and it is the most beautiful Mazda I have seen as far as I can remember. Oh, my God, it looks like an Alfa Romeo Zog.
2: It does, no, absolutely, and it helps that the show car was in a lovely, rather Italian red. But yeah, no, it, yeah, it does. It looks like it could be an Alfa Romeo concept. You know, for a small, beautiful Alfa coupe, it's just gorgeous. Little two seater. As you say, it's supposed to be building on the legacy of the MX Five, another extension of a legacy product. But it's a coupe. Such beautiful, beautiful, smooth lines. Tiny, tiny little mirrors and a rotary engine intrigued me enough. It has a two rotor rotary internal combustion engine, which I believe is not connected to the wheels. That rotary engine is a range extender, it's a generator for the electric motors, which are in the sort of 365 horsepower range. Yeah, I want one, it's fantastic. Bring it on. Please, yeah, yeah. very soon, very soon.
0: First master I've seen in a long time where I thought, I want you. It's that smoothness, dog. This car is the antithesis of the Cybertruck. The Cybertruck is, you know, all protractor and folded paper. This is like it's been carved out of, I don't know, an orange or a melon or an organic shape. It's full of compound curves and almost no details as well. Hidden handles, impossibly slim Mm.
2: shut lines between panels. Oh, it is lovely. Don't you think there's maybe a touch of Lotus about it? I think yeah. There's... Oh, yeah.
0: Exactly what Lotus do. Yeah. 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 And great. Great for it. You know, I love a Lotus. And if other people can do it, fair play. The performance is going to be something interesting. Oh, actually, you mentioned the MX-5 as this being building on the heritage, of the MX-5. But it's also dipping into our X7 territory as well because of the rotary Wankel engine. Yeah. And they seem to think that a Wankel engine is ideally suited to being a range extender you know it can run at its optimum rpm for generating power sticking it in a small battery which the two motors i'm assuming it's got oh no it's rear wheel drive one motor on the rear wheels although they're describing it as mid-engined so the wankel rotary engine is going to be immediately behind the driver where the boot is at the moment so it's not going to have the biggest boot space this thing but it's a proper mid-engine sports car it's closer to the mr2 than the
2: rx7 or the mx5 isn't it really in that respect that sort of raises a question about well okay yeah it's mid-engine because the engine is where you'd find the engine in a mid-engine car but it's an engine that's driving a generator rather than an engine that's connected to a gearbox and then to the drivetrain directly. Does that mean there's some technical regulation that we don't know about that means you can't call it a mid-engine car? Yeah, I just imagine there's some sort of, you know, yeah. sports car nomenclature police yeah. who are going to step in and say, no, sorry, you can't call this a mid-engine. There's no gearbox. It's not connected to any of the wheels. That's not a proper mid-engine car. I don't know. It's... a. Uh, <laughs> the engine's in the middle, it's mid-engined um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go with that I think Mazda have come up with their first
0: genre-busting car, haven't they? The mid engine <laughs> car with an engine that isn't connected to the wheels directly yeah. It's got to be a first, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong In terms of performance, you said it's got about 350, 360 brake horsepower or thereabouts?
2: I think I'd read both 365 and 374 maybe Okay, yeah Something like that. Sufficient, you know, sufficient power, I think. Yeah. It weighs
0: about 1,400 kilos because it's got a twin rotor, vankel engine, and a battery pack, and electric motors, which is about 40% heavier than an MX-5. So it's quite a lot heavier. But the Mm. idea that Mazda are selling here that it's for the generation who are in love with driving it's a driver's car not an ev which in many ways is a device for getting you from a to b as efficiently as possible this is rear wheel drive this is tail end out this is a proper car it ain't going to be a real car i think they would have called it the rx7x or the mx5x if it was going to be a real car but it will certainly inform both the rx7 and the mx5 Going forward. That's the second time I've used going forward in this entire programme, and I think I should stop now and stop embarrassing myself.
2: What you're saying is that going forward, you are got to use the phrase going forward less. <laughs> I just want, to, just want to clarify. I'm just checking. You know, I just Going forward, I won't be using the term going forward.
0: You've been listening to Zog. Goodbye. And I was Gareth Sear for another On Speed, where we'll talk about the Las Vegas Grand Prix Yay. in two weeks' time. Bye.
3: For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whiz Bang.
1: Gareth Jones on Speed!